1: Tonight, we're going to cover two letters. Again, uh, we're going to cover Sardis and Philadelphia. And both of those are in Chapter 3 of the Book of Revelation. Um, The reading from today's um, Gospel passage in the Maronite Liturgy is from John, Chapter 10. I am the Good Shepherd... A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, I suppose... um, A word or two may be said about the recent election. Someone came to me afterwards wondering about the result of the election, what that means. I'd like to remind all of us of a very fitting passage, and that is in Luke, when Our Lady and St. Joseph went up to the temple and found the child Jesus. they told him, behold, she told him, St. Joseph did not speak, but Our Lady said, Son, why have you done such a thing to us? Behold, your father and I were looking for you, sorrowing. And he answered in reply, Where were you looking for me? Did you not know that I, was, I am to be about my father's business, or I am to be in my father's house? And St. said, they did not understand what he said. They did not understand what he said. Joseph and Our Lady did not understand what he said. Oftentimes, the Lord will do something and will say something, and we will not understand. Yet, he came down with them. That's the key. If elections don't go our way, or a certain goal is not achieved, doesn't mean he's not in control. And it doesn't mean his will is not being done. It simply means that that's an invitation for a deeper communion with him. So that as we are conformed to him and to his will, we come to understand better and better what is going on. So anytime things seem to be at odd, it is not the things that are at odd. It is mostly us. Keep that in mind and remain in peace. No matter what happens, he is. He is, the King. And that is this fitting for our, two reading today for our two, two, two letters, one to Sardis, <coughs> and the other one to Philadelphia. So in chapter three. Beginning of chapter three, we read, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And again, I am reading from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. This is the Bible that I use in this Bible study, and I strongly recommend that you get yourself a copy. It is very fitting for Bible study. I know your works. You have the name of being alive, and you are dead. Awake and strengthen what remains, and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep that and repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis people who have not sold their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy He who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments and I will not blot his name out of the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I remind you that the reason why the letters are addressed to the angel of the church is because of the new order in the economy of salvation. In the old economy, in the old covenant, the hierarchy was structured so that God would speak to the angels, the angels would speak to Moses Moses would speak to Aaron and Aaron would speak to the people and there was a definite chasm between angels and the people of the old covenant, not so in the new covenant as we shall see later in the book of Revelation so that as Saint Paul says the church is set by Christ in order even to teach the angels now the church is above the angels Because, after all, the angels are creatures of God, they're sons of God, but the church is his bride. So thus, Christ speaks to a bishop, to an apostle, to a pillar, John, and it is John that then speaks to the angel, and the angel to the church. That's an important element of the new covenant. Remember, every church has a garden angel, you have a garden angel, Please do not ignore them, acknowledge them, and have a great devotion to your garden angel. Sardis, um, in the 6th century before Christ, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world. But by the Roman period, it had declined so much that it was only a shadow of its former glory. Sardis was located some 50 miles east of Ephesus on a northern spur of Mount Tmolus. So Ephesus is closer to the sea and effectively if you were to go 50 miles in kind of a straight line, you then hit Sardis. So what we're doing right now is we went um, clockwise from Ephesus up and now we're coming back down. We're going to complete the circle later. It had a Roman theater and a stadium, as well as an exceptionally large temple dedicated to the god Artemis. It was 160 feet wide by 300 feet long. Its 78 ionic columns, ionic columns refer to a special kind of marble, as far as I can tell, of which two are still standing, uh, were each 58 feet high. So that was a pretty big temple. Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia and it was the most obstinate of the foreign powers that the Greeks encountered. They, they put up a pretty good resistance. In, uh, in A.D. 17, Sardis, along with other cities, suffered a major earthquake, which Pliny, the historian in his uh, natural history, called the greatest disaster in human memory. And it was rebuilt with considerable help from the Emperor Tiberius, about 10 million sesterces, equivalent to about a million dollars, although I am not sure if the million dollars is uh, our epoch or maybe early century. C- considerable amount of money came from Rome to help rebuild the city. As a result, you can imagine, oh yeah, and plus uh, they were given five years tax remissions. So for five years, they, were, they didn't have to pay taxes in order to help them rebuild the city. So you can imagine it once more the uh, the cult of the emperor was well and alive in Sardis. The church of Sardis came under the most severe denunciations of the seven. That's one of the harshest letter. The last letter is also very pretty, pretty strong. Why? The interesting thing about Sardis is that unlike the other cities we've seen so far, there was no persecution. No one was after them. No one was putting pressure on them. And yet, the church in Sardis managed to live peaceably with the pagan environment. In other words, they compromised in such a, in such a way that they ended up fitting nicely with the rest. If you notice the language, I know your works, one more time, the insistent, insistence on works In some of the Protestant scriptures, you will see that they uh, timidly replace works, do not use works, but use deeds. Um, As you know, uh, Protestant uh, theology is founded on the notion of sola fide, by faith alone, and that works is not necessary. And that's why there is a sort of an allergy to use the word works. But the truth being what it is, works are what determines or, or gauge our faith you have the name of being alive you have the name of being alive so from outward appearances the church look alive lots of activities are going on lots of things are happening probably they had 422 committees of different kind to take care of 622 activities that were very busy people you have the name of being alive that's what looks like, but you're dead. You're dead. You can understand why Christ reserved to himself the right to judge. Because we, typically, see outwardly. We only see the appearances. We don't have the divine eye to see the truth. But when Christ says, you're dead, you're dead. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. Doesn't that sound a little bit contradictory? He just said, you're dead. How could you awake and strengthen what remains? I mean, you're dead. Do you, you understand what the problem is between the two verses? It sounds kind of awkward. He just said, you're dead. Well, if you're dead, right, means what? Well, your heart is not taken. You're dead. What's the point of asking somebody to awake? Well, that's because the first statement of you're dead is seen from the vantage point of eternity. Meaning, if you were to die today, if you were to stop right now, and you come to your judgment, you're dead. Right? But because we are creatures of time, time is afforded. You can still repent. That's the powerful grace of Christ. And even though you're dead, through the grace of Christ, you can still be regenerated. You can still be brought to life. We need to keep that in mind because we are going to hear many times of the first death and the second death and the first resurrection and the second resurrection. In our lives as Christians, there may be many resurrections. Not one. But every time we fall in mortal sin, we die. And every time we return to the life of grace, we're brought back to life. I'm not using this metaphorically. I'm not using this to make pretty images. I'm using this to speak of eternal realities. That's what it means when we are brought back from mortal sin into a life of grace. We were dead and now we live. That's how it's seen from from eternity. For all appearances, we look the same. We smell the same, we talk the same, nothing's changed. But that's just appearance. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect. Perfect. Not, I have not found your works. You got none. There's nothing to be seen. No, no, no. Perfect. Now, is that hard? Or is it not hard? It's hard, isn't it? What he says to them is saying to us right now. What does, what does that mean? He expects our work to be what? Perfect. perfect. Now those of you who today completed perfectly one work, please raise your hand. Okay, we're in trouble, aren't we? Who can claim? Who can claim that his work is perfect? I mean, I mean, yes, God, absolutely. I'm talking about us. Which one? Show me. Where is it? Where are they? Well, Mother Teresa and John Paul the, you know, the second, and maybe John Paul the first, and you know, a couple of those. I can count ten of those, maybe twenty. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? See, there lies a fundamental flaw in our understanding of the truth of our Christian faith. Apart from me, says the Lord, you can do nothing. Apart from me, Jesus told his disciples, you can do nothing. Remember that? Okay. Therefore, everything that we do, which is worthwhile doing, is done with Christ. You agree? Yes? It is done with Christ, not apart from Christ. It is with Christ that it is done. Now, to our eyes, because we only see our part, it looks what? Pretty much imperfect but because it is done with Christ, it is what? It is perfect. You understand? You know, when they came to, to start the case, the canonized St. Teresa little child Jesus, you know what the nuns, her own sister, her own sister said, you want to do what? Why should we? I mean, yeah, I mean, she suffered. Sure, she was a good nun. A saint? Oh No. Her own sister. And the other sisters concurred. Well, why should we do that? St. Okay. Charles, the same thing. You want to do what? Yeah, sure, he was a good priest. I mean, he was devout and all that, and obedient, but a saint? Oh, no. Why? Because we only see what's on the surface. We can't see what's beneath. Right? The problem that we all run into on a day-to-day basis is because everything we do mentally is done apart from Christ. He's not our partner. He's not present. He's not asked. He's not involved. It's us, whether we're studying whether we're trying to solve a difficult problem, whether we have marital issues, whether we have issues with our parents, with our children. We do it, and not once do we consult with him. And so, we tend to take the blame, completely on our shoulders, and the credit as well. And in both cases, end up in a very difficult situation. Can't have peace this way can't have peace. So to this little child, Jesus used to say, it used to be the case that I wanted to do great deeds. Now, the mere desire of them is sufficient for me. This is someone who knew the limitation of what a human being can do on his or her own and she was then therefore very happy and content with every little every little good thought or deed she could come up with we on the other hand have big big expectations big joys, big disappointments, everything is big everything is big the roads are big, the cars are big, the homes are big the portions are big, we're getting big everything is big But it's the little things, the little things that show the greatness of our faith. The little things. Remember how she smiled to this one nun? There's this one nun whom she could not, whom she didn't have much compatibility with. She did not, she irked her. And she decided to smile to this nun more so than to the other one. And she wrote that in her diary. And when she died, the confusion and the surprise of this nun when she found out it was her, she never thought it was her. That smile cost her a lot. It was a small thing. But it was done perfectly. Because done with Christ. So when you hear those words, don't be discouraged. He's not saying, I want you on your own to to do perfect things. He's saying... You are the branches. I am the vine. You be joined to me and we will do perfect things. Even though if you don't see the perfection of them. Don't judge. You have a family. You have kids. You're running around. You're screaming your head off. Things are not going the way you want. You're saying the rosary and the kids are climbing the, the, the curtains and playing Tarzan and the rosary seems to be... Gone. It looks like a terrible rosary. It looks like a terrible rosary. Keep saying it. Don't judge outwardly. God knows. The letter comes from the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we know that the seven stars are already identified with the angels. We know that from chapter 1. The, the, the angels of the seven churches. Now the seven spirits in this specific context, because it is a context of the one who's talking about perfection, therefore the flow of grace represents two things. Number one, the entire angelic orders, the entire angelic order, meaning that all the angels that, are, that dispense grace to all of us are held by Christ, and secondly, the fullness or perfection of the work of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit. So you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who assists us and helps us. He's our advocate. He's our consoler. He's our protector. He's the one who prays in us when we cannot even pray. So he is pointing out to them that you have to come to me. Stop going to the world hoping that it will make you happy. You have to come to me and then your work will be perfect. And effectively, the, the, the Church of Sardis can be accused of nominalism. They're Christian only by name. Only by name. All they have is a name of Christian, but there's nothing else. And then he gives them five imperatives, five commands. He tells them, remember then what you, have, what you received and heard keep that, repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour. So remember what you received and heard, keep, repent, and then, so I got three, essentially. I don't know why I wrote five. But remember, keep, and repent. Remember what you received and heard. What you received and heard. Right? So it's the preaching that you heard and the Spirit that you received. You just mentioned the seven Spirits. You received the Spirit, the Spirit made you able to hear. Remember that. Remember the initial gift that is given you, the gift to hear. Remember what you heard. So to all of us, it's a constant call to watchfulness for what we received and what we heard you know the law of anthropy applies in in our life of faith as much as it applies in the rest of the universe the law of anthropy says basically things left to their own will degrade will not improve simple example you clean your house you close it you go on vacation for a month when you come back what happens it's dirty right it's dirty right? you had no kids running around you had nobody using it it's dirty that's anthropy for you and all the universe progresses this way. I mean, de regresses this way, so to speak. And life of faith is the same thing. You receive it, you don't nourish it, it goes to waste. Keep that and repent. Repentance is always metanoia, that movement that makes us turn away from one thing in order to turn towards another thing. So we have to turn away from sin in order to turn to God. It's a One continuous move. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. It is interesting that this notion of be awake, be watchful, is applied to Sardis, because historically what happened is Sardis had an Acropolis which was up on the mountain and almost nearly impregnable because it had natural defenses. The walls were very high. And only twice in its history was it taken. Once by uh, Cyrus, who effectively, in 549 B.C., sent one of his guys climbing on one side of the mountain, found a crevice, and succeeded in climbing all the way up and then opening the gate, because the people of Sardis were not watchful. And that feat was repeated again in, um, in, in, in 216 B.C., when Antiochus, Antiochus uh, the Great, um, captured the city by uh, by sending a Cretan by the name of Lagoras, who discovered a vulnerable point, and with 15 men made a daring ascent, opened the gates, and allowed the enemy to enter. So in both cases, was, the city fell because they were not watching. So it it is a good um, It's a good point that Christ is making to the people of Sardis that the city, when it fell, is a good representation of your own soul. If you're not watchful, the enemy will enter and then the enemy will overtake it. Conversely, if you're not watchful, I will come like the enemy. I will come like the thief. And I will overtake you in judgment. So that's that's a very important lesson for us. Christ said multiple times... For instance in Luke 12:35 to 40 in the parable of the watching servants we have this reference to the thief who comes in the night when the servants were not watching but also in Matthew chapter 24 verse 42 to 44 Christ said that the second coming would be like a thief like a thief that comes at night And also, you'll find the same reference made in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, and 2 Peter 3:10. 2 Peter 3:10. What is important, therefore, here, is that this coming like a thief. When the Lord tells them, "I will come like a thief." In this this context, we understand that his coming like a thief is related to them not being awake. If you're not awake, I will come like a thief. Therefore, it cannot be the eschatological second coming. Christ, obviously, is not talking about the second coming, because the second coming is not dependent on the people of Sardis to awake. The second coming is dependent on nothing. So that's one of the clearest indications in the book of Revelation that it isn't about the end of the world and the second coming. Not directly. Not primarily. It is about events that affected the people living who were contemporary to St. John. And it's in that context that we have to understand the text. He adds, yet you have those, you have still a few names and Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. So even though the church as a whole is dead, there are still a few souls who have not sold their garment. The image of soiling your garment means what? You, 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 were, you fell. That's how you sold your garment. You fell and you dirty yourself. They have not sold their garment, meaning they did not sin. Okay. And to those, Christ promises what? He says... They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The walking with me has a number of references that are important here. The first one is probably the walking with God uh, of Enoch. Enoch lived before the flood. And what is peculiar about Enoch is that God took him. He did not die. Elijah and Enoch both were assumed body and soul in heaven. And what is said about Enoch is that he walked with God. And God took him. Enoch did not die. That's the first reference. The second reference is also to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 66 and following. It is in that chapter where Jesus speaks of the Eucharist and his disciples are so shocked that they who walked with him from the beginning decided to go away. So it refers also to those who walked with Christ through his, uh, during his public life on earth. The fact that they're going to walk with him in white though is probably a reference to the white robe of the high priest especially on the the high feasts, as well as the wedding feast. That's when you don a white garment. So, when you combine all these together, the white garments and robes, which are, by the way, mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, indicate that these people who have not sold their garment, will be given eternal life, and they will be able to walk with God, and they will enter heaven. It is interesting that later in the book of Revelation, towards chapter 6, verse 9, we will see that there are souls of the martyrs who are under the altar, and they are told to wait until their number is complete, and they are given also white robes. So walking in white doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to take a stroll with Jesus in a golf course on a clear, sunny blue sky. That's not the image we have to have in mind. Because Enoch, um, more than likely, was persecuted. So walking with Christ is walking with Christ. And his most famous walk led him up a hill, if you remember. And he was carrying something rather uncomfortable. That's walking with Christ, but that walk is will result in those people wearing a white garment and living in heaven. So therefore, presumably, those few which are trying to live a light, righteous life are being persecuted by the rest. You can imagine, right? You have a church where, let's say, no one kneels. You have a couple of souls who are kneeling, or oh, you pretending to be devout. You, you think you're a saint, that sort of stuff, right? Well, probably those people who are not singled out by the others as examples to be followed. Rather, they're the radicals, the ones who are weird. And so Christ is telling them, persevere, and your reward is going to be there for you. Interestingly, to those who overcome, three things are promised. They will be dressed in white. We just talked about that. Their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. And Christ will acknowledge them before God and his angels. Christ will acknowledge them before God and angels. So, that's why the thinking is that the dre- being dressed in white is not something that will happen just in heaven. It happens right here. For otherwise, what's this business of their names will not be blotted out of the book of life? if they wait till they are in heaven to receive the white robe, it means that their name is not blotted out from the book of life. And what's the point of acknowledging them then when they're in heaven? It's a done deal. Get it? You understand? Let me repeat again. Three promises are given them. First, you will be dressed with a white robe. Second, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. And third, I will acknowledge you before my God. If Christ implied that the white robe will be theirs when and only when they reach heaven, what's the point of telling them your name will not be blotted out from the book of life? If you are assured to receive a robe in heaven, That implies that your name is not blotted out from the Book of Life, because once in heaven, always in heaven. Likewise, there's no point for Christ to acknowledge them before His God in heaven, because they're already there, and they can only get there if He acknowledges them. Right? You, You see the point. So therefore, the "I'll give you a white robe" doesn't mean when you're in heaven; it means right now. Obviously, it isn't a physical white robe. Right? It's not a physical white robe. What is it then? It is the grace, it's a special grace that Christ gives those who persevere to fortify them and keep them in a life of grace, meaning that they will not commit mortal sin. Right down, here, they are dressed with a white robe. St. Catherine of Siena once said that um, she saw someone, in a vision, she saw someone passing by and she fell on her she fell down to worship. And our Lord said, Catherine, what are you doing? And, he, and she said, Oh Lord, I thought it was you. And I was, I was worshipping you. He said, no. What you just saw is a soul in a state of grace. That's the white robe. Okay? Second, now the second promise makes sense and you, see, you, you feel its strength. I will not blot their name out from the book of life. What is that? That's a 100% guarantee. I'll get you to heaven. That's assurance of eternal life. That's strong. Get it? That's why we say, and that's why theologically it is sound to say, that Christ does not love all the same. That is not extended to everyone. Salvation is extended to everyone. He makes it possible for all of us to reach heaven, but for some, he puts a stamp, so to speak. You will get to heaven. I will give you that white robe for you to persevere, and I will get you to heaven. And I will acknowledge you right now, not when you get to heaven. Right now, I will acknowledge you. I will speak your name before my Father in heaven. Because no one gets to the Father unless he goes For me I am the gate right that's what the promise is if we don't understand it in this order it loses all its meaning it seems he's saying the same thing same thing three times repeating it over but he isn't that's the gift he gives right now alright and guess what there's absolutely nothing that stops you from asking for that gift Is it written anywhere that you can't ask for this gift? As a matter of fact, it is a teaching of the Catholic Church that Christ, God, wishes to give us final perseverance, meaning the ability to persevere until the end. But he will not give it to us unless we ask for it. He won't give it unless we ask. And one wonderful way to ask is the rosary. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. What is that? Final perseverance. All right. So when God puts these people in this in this in this church that is only nominally Christian, these people didn't take off. They didn't go looking for another parish. They didn't quit. They didn't seem to be walking around complaining about the bishop or the priest or the other ones or this or that. They're not, they don't seem to be saying a word. Look what they're receiving. All right. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word of patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll see how far we can go through this letter it's very rich. Now Philadelphia modern Al-Shahir lies in the eastern end of a broad valley that passing through Sardis some 30 miles west-northwest leads down to the Aegean Sea near Smyrna. Its location commanded high ground on the south side of the river Kogamis a tributary of the Hermes. The strategic location of trade routes, at a juncture of trade routes leading to Mysia, Lydia and Phrygia, the imperial post route from, from Rome to Troas past to Philadelphia, has helped it earn the title Gateway of the East and made it a city of commercial importance. The great volcanic plain to the north was fertile and well-suited for planting grapes. With an economy based on agriculture and trade, Philadelphia enjoyed considerable prosperity Its only drawback was where the frequent earthquakes, and the earthquake of A.D. 17 hit Philadelphia real hard since it lied on the fall line. So you have a city which is in a strategic location, commercially wealthy, called the Gateway to the East, and having lots of prosperity. Following the earthquake of 1780, it took the name of neo Neo-Kaicera for a time, in appreciation for the imperial help received for rebuilding. At a later date under Vespasian, AD 69-79, to the name Flavia began to appear on coins. So it changed its names twice. and this, is, this second name is one of the minor reasons why I don't think the book of Revelation was written uh, during this period. I believe it was written before 69. Before, before 70 AD and before 69 because it is addressed as Philadelphia. You could argue, though, that it, is, it could be written later. Philadelphia was remarkable for its many temples and religious festivals. For this reason, in the 5th century AD, it was called the Little Athens. So, again, a city very prosperous where well, you have a big synagogue, lots of religious festivals. And, of course, it's a city known for its wine. Dionysus was the god associated with the city and he had his own festival. I can let you imagine what that festival looked like. After Tiberius's help, it, found, it founded a cult of Germanicus, the adopted son and heir of the emperor. And between AD 211 and 217, a provincial temple for the imperial cult was built and Philadelphia was honored with a neo-neocoros, warden of the temple. So it had it, it had a very strong association with imperial cult. It had a big synagogue. What is the end result? Persecution. The Jews would would um, act as informers to the Romans and would tell them about those Christians who are unwilling to. Offer worship to the to the emperor, and then here it goes. So it is, it is a it is a weak and poor church. Not a lot of com- committees over there. The letter of Philadelphia is similar to that of Smyrna. So out of the seven letters, you have two of commendation and five of condemnation. Keep that ratio when you look at our church today. And we're talking about the ancient church. So again, any image of the ancient church being composed of the bunch of saintly folks walking with halo above their heads and little wings and then saluting themselves with hands folded, hopefully is smashed and destroyed. The same church back then is the church today. Same problems, same issues, same concerns, same difficulties, same everything. Don't get discouraged By ignorance of history. Okay? Now, Christ says, I am the Holy One and True One. This is reminiscent of the Trisagion. Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One. The first title, Holy One, is familiar is a familiar title for God. For instance, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 3. Mark chapter 1 verse 24. John, chapter 6, verse 69. The first epistle of, of Clement. It's not part of scripture, but it's ancient. Chapter 23, verse 5. So, when Christ says to himself, I'm the Holy One, that means I'm God. There's no other possible interpretation. That's a good pointer for if you have some friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses and tell you Jesus is not God. Like point them to this part of scripture because it gives them some. Hopefully give them something to think about. And then to this is joined the true one. Now, true can be understood as genuine and faithful. And it means both. When he says, I'm true God, I'm genuine, I'm I'm authentic, I'm I'm real, I mean what I say, I say what I mean, and I'm faithful. What I promised you on the cross, I will bring about true and faithful. So God is true and God is faithful. And then he says this, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. There are here two very important references in the background, and they are tiled. They were superimposed. The first one, you probably guessed it, is in Matthew chapter 16, when he gives the key to Peter. And the second one, which this one is actually, the Matthew reference is based upon, is in Isaiah chapter 22. So with the time remaining right now, I'm just going to go through this, and I'll stop, and we'll pick up this letter, and conclude uh, next week. Um, Why, first, what's the point of bringing up these two, These two references. What is the point of the key? My take on it is that it's once more a reference to the Council of Jerusalem. A reference to the Council of Jerusalem. I'll explain to you why in a minute. But first, let's look at those two two, uh, passages briefly. The first one in Matthew, chapter 16. You know the passage, or you you think you know it Um, yes so starting with verse 13 now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippa he asked his disciples who do men say that the son of man is and they said some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that I am Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus answered him Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and losing, opening and shutting, same thing. Right? A couple of quick remarks for your attention. Simon Bar Jonah, what does Bar mean? Right, son of. What is the name of Simon's dad? John. John. All right, well, in English, John, Jonah, you know, it sounds very close. Not so in Aramaic. What is John in Aramaic? Yohanon. What is Jonah? in Aramaic Yunan Yohanon Yunan big difference Jesus said Simon Bar Yunan when he should have said Simon Bar Yohanon and every single manuscript of Matthew says Jonah, not John so you have of course some theologians will say well you know that's a copyist mistake but it's such a small mistake, who cares, after all. Really? You see, if you read this passage in context, you'll understand that right before this, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Give us a sign. And Jesus answered, An evil and an evil and adulterous or something to that effect, generation as for a sign, yet the only sign that will be given it is that of Jonah. For so just as Jonah entered the, the belly of the whales and stayed in the, in the sea for three days, so then shall the Son of Man stay in the, in, the, in the earth for three days. And people think, therefore, that the sign that he's giving them is the resurrection, but the reality is that it's not at all. Because Jonah was sent to Nineveh. To preach for Nineveh so that Nineveh may not be destroyed. And after that, Nineveh, God used Nineveh to come down and destroy Israel. And likewise, Jesus, Jesus, will send Peter to the new Nineveh, Rome, so that Rome may not be destroyed and Rome will come down and destroy Jerusalem. So who was the um, Jonah he had in mind? Himself. He is Jonah. As a matter of fact, there are many parallels between Jesus and Jonah. Remember when the apostles were on the, on the sea and there was a storm? Right, So you have mariners on the sea and a storm. You have a prophet, Jesus, sleeping. In the case of Jonah, you had mariners on the sea and a storm, and you had a prophet, Jonah, sleeping. In both cases, they were afraid. In both cases, they woke them up. In one case, Jonah said, throw me overboard, I'm the one causing the problem. When they did that, everything went back to normal. In the case of Jesus, he stood up, rebuked the wind, everybody, everything went back to normal. Jonah. He is Jonah. If he is Jonah, who is Peter? Simon, bar Jonah. He is his son. And if he his son, he is which son? The firstborn. Alright? That's why he gives him, so to speak, the double portion. He's the firstborn. He gets the double portion. He gets the keys. Now where does this business of key come from? One, th- uh, one last thing I'll say to you. Um, in some translation... You see here, for instance, even in this one, it's unfortunate because they say, I will build my church on the powers of death. But that's not what Jesus said in the Greek. In the Greek, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Not the power of death. The gates of Hades. Not Gehenna, which is hell. Hades. Limbo. Shall not prevail against it. People think that Jesus is saying, I build my church on the rock and Hades will attack, hell will attack, but the church will be able to push away the attack. That's how the text is most often understood. But it's actually the other way around. It isn't about death or hell attacking the church. It's about the church attacking Hades, the abode of the just. And the gate will not prevail. Why? Because of the Key. Key, gate. Connection. That's why there is a key. Because there's a gate. So when I translate it translated this way, the meaning goes away. What is what is what Jesus is saying to Peter is that I will give you that key which opens purgatory. The soul that you, Peter, will release from purgatory will be released. And those you won't release will not be released. That's simple. So now, when he says, I am David, and I hold the key, we come to this text, and this text is also based on that of Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. I'm, I'm taking a little bit of time here because those are really good texts to point out to those who ask you about the apostolic succession. Why do we believe in the apostolic succession? Because it is in Isaiah. In the case of Isaiah, we read the following, chapter twenty-two, verse fifteen: "Thus says the Lord God of hosts: Come, come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have hewn here a tomb for yourself? You who hew a tomb on the height and carve a habitation for yourself in the rock, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently." O you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your splendid chariots, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be cast down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father, Pope, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. The reason why he puts the key on his shoulder is because when David established the position of prime minister, the prime minister was responsible for the family of David, for the family of the king, and his immediate possession, the treasures in the palace. And the way you recognized the prime minister was that because he was the man walking around with a key on his shoulder. So the key was a sign of power and authority. Now they, Jesus, in the passage in Matthew, establishes Peter, his son, the one who is going to succeed him, The one to whom the succession will come as the holder of the key. Okay? Now what did Peter do in Jerusalem? He stood up and spoke and said, we must, we should accept the Gentiles without the need of circumcision. And James added then, only thing we ask from them is to abstain from all these things that are connected with pagan worship. So when Jesus says, I am the one who holds the key of David, he is affirming that authority which was given to Peter. Through the apostolic succession we read in Isaiah, because in the case of Isaiah, Isaiah, one guy was thrown away, but his post, his office remained, and the power was attached to the office. And Eliakim was brought into this office, and because he was brought into this office, he was given the key. And that's why, after the death of Peter, another takes his place, and the power is passed on. Okay? So effectively, Jesus is telling them, you, he makes reference to this, you have kept my command. Meaning what? You're a small church, you're weak, in a very prosperous city. Clearly, your weakness economically is connected to the fact that you're not, you're unwilling to go worship the, the, uh, the emperor and participate in pagan worship, you've been persecuted, you've been framed by those who belong to, by the, by, the, by the Jews in the synagogue, and yet you remain faithful. Faithful to what? To those commands that were given in the council in Jerusalem, to the commands of the church. That's why he's praising them. In every single one of those letters, it's a one so to speak, a silver lining entire, in the entire letters, they all revolve around their behavior and attitude towards the teachings and decree of the council because the council speaks infallibly. When the council speaks, Christ speaks. There's no difference. So what the council taught was the teaching of Christ. And the church is commanded to obey Christ as St. Paul teaches. And that's why they're being rewarded. So next week, we're going to conclude this letter, finish the next one, and hopefully have a little bit of time to tie all those letters together. What we're going to do now, as usual, is spend a little bit of time on questions regarding this particular talk. Yes. The angels. Very good question. From, yes. From, from Scripture, we know that angels are higher than people. And now I'm saying that the church is higher than the angels. How could that be? In the natural order, remember, angels are natural creatures. Their nature happens to be purely spiritual. Not material. But nonetheless, they're natural creatures. In the natural order, they're absolutely superior to us, in every respect. No doubt about that. But not in the order of grace. Since God instituted his church, the order has switched. The living example of this is Our Lady, who though is a creature, is a human creature, in a natural order, she's much inferior to the angels, yet she is their queen. So it's the order of grace that switches everything upside down. That's why. And since the church is the bride of Christ, his mystical body, even the angels, Scripture tells us, learn from the church, so that God wishes for them. So, effectively, when He established the the church, God sent His angel to continuing education, and they learn from the church. And that also goes to their benefit and to their added glory, because it had they have to exercise also the virtue of patience. And sort of live at the rhythm of the church yes well in the, the question is in regard to verse 23 which states that would be a secondary meaning perhaps but not primary meaning in the context of Jerusalem in the context of Jerusalem verse 23 and it will fasten him like a peg in a sure place and we will become a throne of honor to his father's house that simply means that he will give him earthly glory because of his faithfulness, which is symbolic of the heavenly glory that is given all those who are who remain faithful to God. Yes. The question is, in regards to the book of Revelation and the, seven, and the seven letters, do we look at them also anagogically, meaning as applicable to the life of the church? Absolutely. The anagogical sense is foremost here, but the moral sense as well. And I've alluded to that today in this lecture, in this talk where we Look at the letters and say, this is, this is how he spoke to those, to those churches, but since there were seven of them, this is addressed to the universal church across space and time. So definitely, these are words of warning that every church must heed in every age. Absolutely. Yes. Question number one, were Enoch and Isaiah assumed into heaven, or were they assumed into limbo? My understanding is that they were assumed into heaven. This follows, the same logic applies there that the one we apply to the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. How could someone be born without original sin? Um, thank you. Conceived without original, how could someone be conceived without original sin when the gates of heaven were shut? Well, remember that the, uh, the salvific, the salvific power of the cross extends through time and space, forward and backward. So every good deed that was done before Christ's coming, every good action, every good thing that that happened that people in sin were able to perform was performed in union with Christ and through his cross. So what that means? It means that (coughs) Christ intended to buy the store, so to speak. And he hasn't yet signed all the papers. And his son goes to the store and then takes a chewing gum. And the store owner calls him and says, your son just bought a chewing gum. And he says, not a problem. I'll take care of that when the papers are all signed. That's what happened in the case of Our Lady. That's what happens in the case of Enoch and in the case of Elijah. Second question. Yes, can angels and humans, very good question, grow in glory in heaven? Not in the glory they receive in an absolute sense, but they can grow in accidental glory. Absolutely. That's why when we invoke the saints, they are performing good deeds. Those good deeds will not go without the reward. Yes. All right? Yeah. Uh, the question is in Arabic, we say, we call the country Greece Yunnan, which is a very good point. I never thought of it before. Is there a relationship between Yunnan? Greece and Jonah, the guy. Don't know. There could be homonyms or there could be a relationship. I would recommend you look into it and you tell me. I'm interested now. Thank you. Yes. It's a very good point. Um, when, um, about perfection. Um, when Moses met the Lord at the burning bush, the Lord said, I'm going to send you. Moses said, forget it. He didn't say it this way, but that was the intent. Find someone else. I stutter, I can't talk, I'm too old, I'm this, I'm that. And then God answered back and said, Yeah, I know all these things, but who do you think I am? And I'm going to be with you. So with God, he was able to accomplish all these things. So that's a very good example. Absolutely. Very good. God bless you. We'll continue next week.